Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Busy day. The Russian offensive in eastern Ukraine has uh, gotten underway. The New York Times reports on Trump world's continuing efforts to overturn the election. This is actually not a, not a spoof, not a parody. Maggie Haberman has a deep dive on all of the ongoing efforts by folks in that universe to continue to try to actually decertify the 2020 election. And she writes, some of those allies are casting their work as a precursor to reinstating the former president. Look, I mean, obviously this is preposterous. It's not going to happen. But she points out that these ongoing attempts are fueling a false narrative that has resonated with Trump supporters and stoked their grievances. They are keeping alive the same combustible stew of conspiracy theory and misinformation that threatens to undermine faith in democracy by nurturing the lie the election was corrupt. And of course, because there's always a grift somewhere in here, it has fed a cottage industry of podcasts and television appearances centered not only around false claims of widespread fraud, but the notion the results can still be altered after the fact. So for any of you out there that were under the assumption that things were uh, not getting worse, that uh, we were somehow going to come out of the alternative reality silos, sorry to disappoint. And rather extraordinarily, on this date, April 19th, 2022, we wake up to find out that the mask wars have apparently ended. So we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. And welcome back, uh, Yuval Levin, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, contributing opinion writer to the New York Times, editor-in-chief of the magazine National Affairs. Uh, Yuval was a member of the White House domestic policy staff under W and is a senior editor at The New Atlantis and a contributing editor at National Review. So welcome back on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. So let's talk about this mask, the mask mandate falling. I mean, mm -hmm. by the time I went to bed last night, it was like it's over. It just happened. You had one judge down in Florida, one federal judge who rules that the mask mandate on transportation on airplanes was illegal. And the Biden administration just seemed to kind of roll over and go, well, okay, <laughs> okay. And one airline after another announcing that they are going to be lifting the, the requirement, the TSA saying that it's not going to enforce it. So it just came to an end. Your reaction to that? It happened so fast, I guess. It was, it's was pretty extraordinary. And I think part of what that means is that the administration was looking for an excuse to end this without taking ownership of the end of it. Um, yeah. They've now twice come up against the end of their own deadline for it and have said, well, we'll go another two weeks. We'll go another four weeks. The airlines very much want to end it. The transportation sector in general has very much wanted to end it. And I think this gives them an excuse to say, well, it wasn't up to us, but it's sort of time. And so it's over. And rather than fight it, which they easily could. I mean, this is a district court judge in one state so that and, right. and a Supreme Court that is not friendly to these kinds of national decisions made by district court judges. So I think if they asked the Supreme Court to take it up, the court would have put the judge's decision on hold and would have taken it up this week. They have not done that. They have instead sort of said, well, we'll see what happens, but it's over at this point. And you see immediately Amtrak and the airlines saying, well, OK, this is done with. It is time. And so that makes sense. But it's it's pretty interesting that they've looked at this as an opportunity rather than as a challenge to their own regulatory power. 
the judge's decision is, frankly, pretty persuasive. I mean, I think there is an argument to make here that the, the CDC did not really follow the requirements that they should have for setting this as a regulation. They could fix that. They seem to be choosing not to fix that. And so, uh, you know, I think in a funny way, this is how it ends. Yeah, this is how it ends. I think your analysis is exactly correct that the Biden administration, instead of seeing this as a defeat, saw this as, hey, this is a back door. This is a way out. So you take this very unpopular mandate, you get rid of it without actually taking any responsibility, without alienating any of your allies. Obviously, if they were offended by this ruling, if they really thought that it was uh, that it was wrong, they could have gone to the appellate court for a stay and it didn't do that. So but it happened so quickly. I guess that's the interesting thing. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, So we really are in kind of a a new phase um, in the last 24 hours. But I think it also showed how much sort of pent up energy there was behind moving past that. The fact that that the airlines just they didn't wait for, you know, I mean, they could have easily said, hey, we're going to wait and, you know, talk to our lawyers about that. We're going to, you know, make some inquiries. We're going to see how this plays out. No, they just they were doing it over the PA system. Yeah, I mean, yes. they've been <laughs> eager to see this end for for months now, and they've been told, frankly, by the administration that that it was coming, and so I think they took this as an opportunity too. And uh, it's not a great moment for American statesmanship. This isn't really a way to make decisions, but it was coming, and so I think everybody saw it as a way to give somebody else the blame if there is blame to be had. So let's talk about just briefly about what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, Russia has been building up for this new offensive in the east. Uh, they've learned some of the lessons of their failures uh, in the past. We'll find out how much they have learned. The ongoing debate that we have had on this podcast and within within our own family about whether or not we have been aggressive enough in supplying weapons to Ukraine. You know, we're going to get a test of that very, very shortly. Where do you come down on that question about whether or not we have been sufficiently supportive of the Ukrainians at this particular moment. Well, look, I think in a funny way, this is actually connected to what we've just talked about with the way that the mask mandate has ended, which is the administration is refraining from taking real ownership of the actual policy direction that it is pursuing. Hmm. And that makes it difficult to know what the president wants, what the administration wants, and in this situation, really what the United States wants. I think the U.S. has been fairly aggressively supportive of Ukraine, but in a way that has masked its own character. You can see why. It makes sense. But I think that has made it very difficult for our allies to know where we're setting boundaries and has made it very difficult for us ourselves to make any kind of firm statement of our own position and of what we think needs to happen. It's a strange kind of passive way to make policy. Obviously, there's a desire to avoid creating a bigger confrontation than is needed. But I think the United States has been passive aggressive in a way that ultimately doesn't serve us well. So since we're connecting dots here, it struck me yesterday when I saw a headline, and I think it was a Politico headline, that that people in the White House were getting concerned that uh, perhaps President Biden had uh, been too consumed with Ukraine because the voters were already getting tired of it. And the thought crossed my mind that among the many, many challenges that we face as a country, as a culture, as an empire, one of the biggest challenges is our incredibly short attention span. And that's true with the pandemic that, you know, we just we're just done with it. We're just tired of it. And we're at the two month point of the war in Ukraine. And there's already starting to be this creeping into the edges of the conventional wisdom, the sense that, yeah, Americans are kind of bored with this already. So we we do have an attention span problem 
don't we? Yeah, you know, I think it's part of the way in which we confuse politics and entertainment. That mm. We think everything's got to keep us interested. And so if this is still going on, that must be somehow a failure of the writers to uh, keep the plot moving. And of course, it's a good thing that the president is very concerned and spending a lot of time on Ukraine. This is the essence of his job and of the role that only he can play in leading and managing American foreign policy. Um, and, you know, a lot of what our politicians should be doing ought to be pretty boring to a lot of the public if it's done properly. And the fact that we see this as a problem or a failure is, I think, a bit of an indictment of how we now think about not only politics, but leadership itself and government. But it's true. We do. I mean, I think we tend to think that if we're still dealing with the same issue we were a few months ago, then, you know, surely the public's going to lose its interest and we've got to move on to the next big thing. And it's a big part of why our politics looks the way it does. I think it's a particular problem in Congress where there's a tendency to try to make the issue that's leading the cable news shows that day uh, also be the issue that's on the floor of the House and right. Senate that day. And that is just no way for the national legislature to operate. This has been a problem in Congress for years now, of course, and it's got a lot to do with why Congress is so dysfunctional. You know, it's interesting. You try to think about how the news cycle has sped up over the last uh, several decades. I mean, there used to be two news cycles. It used to take weeks to get information from one end of the country to the other, but mm -hmm. I'm going way back now. But now, I mean, how many news cycles do we have? I think you could argue that with social media, we probably have like a thousand news cycles a day. So no yeah. wonder we're a little bit impatient, right? Well, it's been an hour and I haven't had my dopamine hit. Why hasn't the Senate passed X, Y, and Z? That's right. It creates very strange <laughs> demands by the public of sort of, well, why isn't Senator X talking about this? I've been reading about it all day online. It really only applies to a certain class of uh, political junkies. But of course, that's also the class that composes our journalists and some of the most engaged voters in both parties. And they feel they're not being served if they're a member of Congress or if the president is not talking about the thing that everybody on Twitter is talking about. And the speed of Twitter just can't be the speed of American politics, let alone American government. Um, again, it's a big part of why nobody seems to be doing their job is because this other job is not really compatible with the work of running our government. Well, this is a segue to what I wanted to talk with you about. Uh, as I mentioned before we started the podcast, uh, the reason, I mean, the trigger for inviting you back on. I mean, obviously, we would always like to have you back on. But the trigger was your piece in The Times uh, from uh, late last month why do our politicians keep pursuing a losing strategy? I think this is fascinating that your, your argument is, and correct me if I mischaracterize it, is that over the last 30 years, neither party does anything to expand its appeal. Both parties are doubling down on voters they can count on. And you argue that's malpractice. And why has it gone on for so long? And it is interesting. You watch both political parties and you, and you do think occasionally, and I think like on a daily basis, doesn't anybody want to win this game? Doesn't anybody remember how to do this well? So why is this happening? It's a very peculiar problem. It's almost the case that the way to explain the behavior of each party is to assume that it doesn't want a big majority. You say, why are they doing this? Because they think they have too many voters and not too few. Now, obviously, they don't actually explicitly think that way. But I think it's worth seeing that the core political dynamic of the last 30 years, which is very, very close elections and the parties roughly at 50-50, practically speaking, is actually very unusual in American history. It is not normally how things work. 
the way that for most of our history, our two-party system has worked has been described by political scientists as in terms of a sun party and a moon party. That is, hmm. most of the time, there's a dominant political party with a dominant majority, not 80%, but 60%. And there's a significant and important minority party that is a durable minority and has influence at the margins in the way that a minority does. And then after a time, as the dynamics and the issues change, the minority party becomes the majority party. We call that a realignment. Yep. And it becomes the majority party, really, for yep. uh, a, a, another, a durable majority. So if you think about, for example, the 20th century, if we start it at McKinley in 1896, you've got a long period of Republican control from 1896 to 1932, a 40-year period. There's only one Democratic president, uh, Woodrow Wilson. Otherwise, it's a Republican period. Republicans control the White House and the Congress. Then from 32 until the 1950s, you've got a Democratic period. Democrats win five presidential elections in a row. Hmm. They control Congress for all but two years of that time. After that, we've got four decades of what I would call durably divided government. Republicans won seven out of 10 presidential elections from the 50s through the 80s. You have this very long, almost quarter century stretch with only one single term Democratic president, Jimmy Carter, two terms for Nixon, two terms for Reagan, a term for Bush. And yet at the same time, Democrats controlled Congress that entire time. They had 40 years of uninterrupted control of the House, only a six year interruption in the Senate. And so you've got overlapping majorities, a very long period where a lot of Americans are voting at the same time for a Republican president and a Democratic member of Congress. And in each of these cases, you've got a long stretch where people can get used to things and say, OK, this is how things are working now. So how do we advance legislation? What are the issues we're arguing about? Who sets the agenda? Since 1992, we've had a now three-decade stretch where things are up for grabs, where Congress could go to either party in the next election, where the next presidential election could easily go either way. Every election's close. Every majority feels like it could lose next time. And most importantly, really, every minority thinks it could win next time. Nobody has long-term incentives. And in a funny way, that leaves both parties, although they are both effectively minorities for this entire time, we don't really have a durable majority party, they both think as if they were majorities. And neither one is trying to build its majority, is trying to gain more voters that it doesn't already have. Instead, the core strategy is get your voters out. And if you get your voters out, you can win. Because we did win, you know, not long ago by just getting our voters out. And so after every loss, each party says, well, we just got to do the same thing next time and, that, and then we'll win. And the trouble is they're not wrong. It actually works. And so by just getting your own voters out, your own 50% coalition out, you got a pretty good shot of winning the next election. And neither party is thinking about how do we get to 60%. They both assume it's impossible now. We've persuaded ourselves that polarization means parity, which it does not. There have been many polarized periods in American politics where there was a durable majority and a durable minority. They hated each other. There wasn't a lot of crossover. It was very polarized, but it was not at 50-50. 50-50 doesn't have to be the natural situation of a democratic polity. And you can imagine ways that either party could reach beyond itself some, could anger its most devoted activists just a little more, but as a reward for that, get quite a lot 
of potentially swing voters. I don't think either party could win 49 states like Ronald Reagan did or Richard Nixon did, but they could do significantly better than they are if they thought it was their job to build broad coalitions. And of course, that is their job. And so for a generation now, neither party has really been doing its job. So there's a paradox at the heart of this, of of your case, which is that the closeness of our elections has degraded the capacity of our democracy to respond to voter pressure. And, And I wanna talk about that right after this. At the risk of too much information, I live in a house with three dogs, so air purifiers are kind of important to us. So I want to talk to you about Thunderstorm, which I recently installed. Their proven oxy technology quickly destroys viruses, odors, mold, and more. It cleans the air of allergy-causing particles so you can breathe easy again. It freshens your home. It gets rid of any odor like litter boxes, trash cans, cigarette smoke, dirty diapers, cooking smells, and more. Over 200,000 thunderstorms have been sold, so you know that it works. You never have to breathe dirty air again. There are no filters to buy, which I love. It takes up no floor space. It plugs directly into the wall. They are nearly silent great for use in bedrooms. So look, I have these dogs that sleep up in the bedroom. I don't want noisy purifiers going all of the time. So you just plug it in and it runs. And when you wake up in the morning, you can feel the different quality of the air. It comes with a six inch USB cord. It's compact. It's great for traveling. You can bring it along with you to have clean, fresh air and hotel rooms. So This is what you need to do. Go to EdenPureDeals.com. Discount code CHARLIE3, the number three, to save $200. That's three thunderstorm air purifiers for under $200. Shipping is free. Okay, we are back with Yuval Levin. Um, I asked you about this paradox that you're describing, that the closeness of election has degraded the capacity of our democracy to respond to voter pressure. You would think that the opposite would be the case, wouldn't you? That, that because everybody is constantly looking over their shoulder at what the voters want, they'd be very, very responsive. In fact, you argue the opposite has happened. Yeah, exactly. It's true. It's a very peculiar problem. It's a kind of perverse function of the closeness of elections that each party, rather than thinking we almost lost there, we got to think about what we're doing wrong. Even when they lose, they think we almost won there. We got to do that again and get it right next time. And they are very focused on keeping their core voters and getting them out rather than thinking that there are voters out there who they could win, who they are not currently winning. So the parties hunt their heretics rather than seek converts. Yeah, which exactly. is something which is something we see in quite frankly from from both parties that the real energy on the Republican side is, you know, hunting out the rhinos. The real energy on the Democratic side is let's beat up again on Joe Manchin and, you know, Kirsten Cinema. The amount of just pure raw energy that's gone into that is pretty striking. Yeah, exactly. I do think this is a bigger problem. Like most things, this is a bigger problem on the Republican side right now than the Democratic side. But it does exist on both. I mean, the the Arizona Democratic and Republican parties within about a month of each other censured, on the one hand, Doug Ducey, the Republican censured their own sitting governor who had just won a statewide election. The Democrats censured Kirsten Sinema. 
in both cases, basically for undermining party unity. These are people who proved able to win in a purple state. Doug Ducey, you know, his sin was saying the election was over and Donald Trump lost Arizona. And Kirsten Sinema just didn't want to vote for a bill that, that a lot of other Democrats supported. And in both cases, rather than saying, OK, well, maybe this kind of factionalism is what it takes to build a broader majority. They've said, no, we've got to stand together. Things are so close right now that we cannot afford to lose anybody and we cannot tolerate dissent. And both parties are in this mode where they insist on intense loyalty rather than thinking about how do we reach across and build a coalition that can attract people who don't agree with each other about everything, but who at least might agree that the other party shouldn't win the next election. And so it becomes very difficult for the parties to do their basic job, which, you know, politicians have jobs that are about governing. The political party's job is to build broad coalitions. That's their role. And at this point, neither party is doing its job in the least. But as, as you mentioned before, the, the two parties right now are in many ways very, very different. Uh, the Republican Party in the thrall yes. to, uh, to, to Donald Trump in many ways feels like it is a post-policy party, a political party that actually didn't have a, didn't have a platform in 2020 versus mm-hmm. the Democratic Party, which is still sort of a ragtag coalition. You know, you know all of these disparate uh, interest groups out there. So- you know, I look at them and they seem very, very sort of asymmetrical where you have yes. the Republican Party. You know, Donald Trump is trying to make it very, very top down, very much cult of personality. The Democratic Party being much more having all of these disparate coalitions there. So to, can you just talk a little bit about that? Because, yes, they both may be addicted to short termism and they both may be focused on turning out their base rather than expanding their appeal. But they're uh, they're really not the same thing right now. Yeah. So traditionally, uh, by which I guess now we would really mean over the last half century or so, the the Republican Party has tended to be an ideological party. Mm-hmm. Its coalition has been held together by some core agreement or at least a range of, of agreement. And the Democratic Party has tended to be an interest party, a coalition that's held together by a kind of bargaining and accommodation where different groups get different things from each other and in return they hold together. These are both Mm -hmm. perfectly legitimate ways of organizing political parties in a democracy and they've been pretty different from each other. I think those differences have begun to wear down a little bit. The Democratic Party has become much more of an ideological coalition over really, I I guess I would say since about 2008, though in some ways that began earlier, so that it is now much more of a coherently progressive political party, a little bit more like what the Republican Party was in the 1980s, say. There are still factions, but there is a very firmly entrenched orthodoxy and progressives have the power over the ideas. They set the agenda. There are some other people who just need things from the party and and they negotiate with the progressives. But the progressives play the part that the conservatives played in the Republican Party in the 1980s and 90s. Um, And at the same time, the Republican Party has become totally incoherent ideologically. Mm -hmm. Its core mission is to keep the Democrats from winning. And of course, since 2016, it's also been, as you say, a kind of cult of personality so that its mission is whatever Donald Trump woke up and thought that morning. And it holds together basically by focusing on the need to keep the Democrats out of power. And whatever that happens to mean that day is what the Republican Party is about. These are different. They are different parties. They remain quite different. But they both suffer from this 
basic problem of not seeing their way out of the 50-50 the parity that yeah. they're stuck in. They're not thinking about how do we build a big coalition? How do we build a coalition like the Eisenhower coalition or the FDR coalition, which held together for a long time because it was quite large and broad. And of course, the way to build that kind of coalition is to have a lot of tolerance for internal differences, to say, we don't agree about some really basic things. And so we negotiate among ourselves, and then we go out and negotiate with the other party. Neither party right now can handle that. The Democrats, because they've become more ideological, the Republicans, because they've become a cult of personality, have no tolerance for dissent, for internal disagreement. And so they just can't put up with the fact that there are some people among them who only sometimes agree with the larger party. Now, those people are actually pretty powerful in a 50-50 situation, right? You might say Congress right now is run by a coalition of senators who are centrists, by Cinema mm-hmm. and Manchin, Could be, by yeah. a few Republicans who are more moderate and who are not in the real Trump wing of the party. The people who created, say, the infrastructure bill are basically the people who are running things right now in Congress. But they are being hunted by their own parties, all of them. And the parties don't see them as a strength. They see them as a weakness, even though, of course, these are the people who make it possible to get past 50 percent for either party. You would think that that math would focus the mind. But I, I want to come back to the the uh, the problem of the Republican Party, including a piece you wrote about, you know, from Trump party to Trump faction. But let's stick with the Democrats just for a moment. Elizabeth Warren has an op-ed piece out today where she is arguing that if Democrats want to survive, they need to sort of double down on the progressive agenda. They need to pass more more stuff. There are others who think that Joe Biden's problems are he ran as a centrist and then tacked more to the progressive wing when he got into office. What's your, what, what are your thoughts about all that? Because clearly the Democrats are facing a world of trouble. Uh, Joe Biden's uh, poll numbers are, are absolutely abysmal. They're actually a blow. Donald Trump's approval ratings at, mm-hmm. at this point. So what's the answer here? Is, is it to move to the center? Uh, are you arguing that they can create a broader coalition? Or what about the argument from the the Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren wing, you know, screw it. Let's damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. Let's, you know, pass Medicare for all or, you know, uh, eliminate student debt. Um, it's a, or, you know, Green New Deal. Well, I'd say a few things about that. First of all, just as a matter of electoral math, Elizabeth Warren seems to be wrong, just wrong. That's not the way to build a broader coalition is by doubling down on the priorities of the party's most devoted activists. And that's usually not the way to build a broad coalition. Supporters of Elizabeth Warren are never going to vote for Republicans. So Democrats should say, look, these are loyal voters. Obviously, we should care about what they want and make sure that we are achieving something for them. But ultimately, they're reliable. How do we get voters who might go either way? And the answer to that looks more like the kinds of things, frankly, that Joe Biden ran on, but is not really governed on. Um, You know, once he was elected, he didn't really do much beyond uh, what the party's activists wanted. And that's also an interesting part of this pattern, because that's been happening throughout this period, too. You know, Bill Clinton won as a centrist and then got in a lot of trouble and lost control of the Congress because he governed in his first two years as basically a progressive activist. Something similar happened with Barack Obama. The the George W. Bush story is a little different because of 9-11, but there was certainly some of that there with taxes and other things. 
Donald Trump ran as an I don't know what, uh, but, you know, he had some ideas that were not Republican orthodoxy when he ran. But what did he do as a matter of advancing a legislative agenda? He advanced a tax bill that was very much the traditional kind of activist Republican idea of the past 25 years. And Joe Biden, too, he ran on unity and on a kind of return to normalcy. And then once he was in power, he has so far at least allowed the progressive activists mostly to dominate the agenda setting. Both parties do this because they have come to think about governing as a time for spending political capital. And that's not crazy. But I actually think governing is a time for building political capital. And that's Mm. how you build Mm. a broad coalition. That, that patience that's required for that isn't really within the reach of either party at this point. Okay, so let's talk about the future of the Republican Party in in the very short term. You you had a piece in the National Review recently looking ahead at Trump's big gamble, um, endorsing, not endorsing candidates. It seems almost every day he's you know, endorsing Dr. Oz, endorsing J.D. Vance, uh, unendorsing the attorney general in Arizona. And let's talk about that right after this. Okay, I want to talk about Omaha Steaks. A few years ago, a friend sent me a package of Omaha Steaks, and this was near the beginning of summer, and for anybody that's been around Wisconsin at all, you know that summer is the cookout season. Opened up this package of Omaha Steaks, and I have to tell you, this was one of the best things that I have ever gotten, because for me, summer is going out to the lake, firing up the grill, and putting on pork chops, steaks, hamburgers, and Omaha Steaks has the best of virtually anything you can imagine. So let Omaha Steaks make it easy to stock up on all of your grilling favorites. Visit omahasteaks.com, enter Bulwark into the search bar, and order the Spring Grill Pack today. You'll save over 50%, plus you'll get four Omaha Steak Burgers and four boneless chicken breasts free with your order. This package has it all from the butcher cut filet mignons to the delicious caramel apple tartlets. Omaha Steaks delivers perfection in every single bite, every single time, and they back each order with their 100% satisfaction guarantee. Visit omahasteaks.com, type keyword bulwark in the search bar, and order today. Look, there's a reason why Omaha Steaks has been the leader for gourmet steaks and food for more than a century. No one, and I mean no one, comes close to matching the flavor, tenderness, and value of Omaha Steaks. Visit omahasteaks.com, keyword bulwark, and order the spring grill pack today. Okay, we are back with Yuval Levin, uh, who had a very interesting piece, From Trump Party to Trump Faction. So, You argue that Trump looks likely to end up with a pretty mixed record of success for his endorsed 2022 candidates. Uh, How do you think this plays out, Yuval? Well, I think he's doing a peculiar thing. And of course, it's always hard to know with Trump what he thinks he's doing. And it always works through this kind of cloud of narcissism. Um, And so analyzing this in a rational way is a risk. But if you look at the at the decision he's made to endorse really a lot of candidates in a lot of races, it strikes me that the likely effect of it on the whole is going to be to weaken Trump's position within the Republican Party. He starts out, as we've said, running a kind of cult of personality where everybody wants to be identified with Trump. And so in a lot of the of the prominent primary races in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, in even in Georgia, You've got multiple candidates who would like to be identified with Trump. 
Now, normally a leader who wants to be the big heavy in the party would love that situation and would say, okay, great, whoever wins is my person and this is my party. What Trump has done instead, for reasons of personal grudges, but also presumably some kind of calculation here, is to endorse in all of these races, to pick someone and say, actually, only that person is the Trump person. And ironically, the effect of that is to say the rest of the party is not Trump people. Mm -hmm. Um, And to Mm -hmm. create a situation where a lot of candidates and some voters have, by no choice of their own, found themselves outside the circle of Trumpism within the Republican Party. I think this is a good thing because I'd like to see Trump's hold on the party weaken and and disappear. But it's certainly a strange thing. It, It will depend somewhat on how he succeeds, on how many of his chosen endorsed candidates actually end up winning. And we're going to know a lot about that in just the next few weeks because Some of these primaries are really coming up between now and the end of May. But I think almost regardless of how those go, the choice to endorse makes Trump more of a factional leader than a party leader. Interesting. And it's a peculiar choice to make. It is a peculiar choice because right now, I mean, virtually everybody is pro-Trump that's running. So it's not like you have, you know, major races between pro-Trump and anti-Trump, you know, candidates on the ballot and particularly, you know, the Senate uh, races. Uh, It's like super Trump supporters versus mega Trump supporters. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And and, and yet he has made it a choice by going in for Dr. Oz, uh, turning his back on other people who had been kissing his ring or withdrawing his endorsement of Mo Brooks, going all in in this Georgia governor race, you know, David Perdue, who's been, uh, you know, trailing uh, incumbent uh, Brian Kemp. Um, What do you make of the J.D. Vance endorsement? Because that race in Ohio has been this contest of sucking up to Donald Trump. And he went with J.D. Vance. I mean, is is there some is there connective tissue about why he would go with Dr. Oz and J.D. Vance? Is it because of the celebrity factor? I mean, there's something about the you know, the kinds of candidates that he likes, the the ones from, in his mind, central casting, is that what's going on? Yeah, I think that's an interesting theory there. I mean, that that makes some sense. And these are both people, as you say, who have a kind of, uh, in different ways, who have a sort of celebrity. I think there is also, in both cases, a kind of willingness to distance themselves from the rest of the party and identify only with Trump. The Ohio race is uh, is unusual in this sense because you've really you've got at least two, but I think four candidates there who would love to be the Trump candidate, who thought they were going to be the Trump candidate, and there I suppose it's people around Trump who've pushed him to favor J.D. Vance because they've favored him themselves over the last few weeks and months. I think that could have gone in any direction. Um, And frankly, that's a race where Trump's endorsement could actually make the difference. I don't think that's the case in all these races, but that is a place where it was worth quite a lot and therefore led to some really extraordinary groveling. But again, a person who wants to be the overall party leader can sit back from a race like that and say, look, here are four people. They're all, you know, whatever you want to say about them, they're all impressive and would make a good senator and they all want to be the Trump person. That's great. I whoever wins, I win. And, you know, pick whoever you think is best for Ohio. What Trump instead has done is say this one person is the person who I would choose. And that means that a lot of Ohio voters are going to end up choosing a candidate who is not the Trump approved candidate. Interesting. Even though they themselves are not anti-Trump voters. So let's talk about this because of that his decision to do it that way you you write will alter his place in the Republican ecosystem and leave him diminished and and then go back to the distinction between being a party leader and a leader of a faction 
And you talk about the sort of the difference between a party leader and factions. So talk to me a little bit about that, the factionalization yeah, factions, of parties. You know, factions are a very important thing to understand about the way the American party system works because we only have two parties. For most of our history, at any given moment, we've had just two parties. So that a lot of the kinds of differences that happen between parties in European parliamentary systems happen within parties in the American system. And they express themselves as party factions. Uh, we've had fewer party factions lately, and we talked about why a little earlier. The parties really feel the need to enforce loyalty. Uh, but we do have s factionalism, and it matters a lot within our parties. Factions very often operate by endorsing candidates. They announce themselves by saying, these are our people within the party. These are not our people. And so if you want to be the third way Democrat, or if you want to be the social conservative and not the libertarian, this is the candidate for you in this particular race. And that can be a way for a faction to strengthen itself if it begins as just a bunch of loose, unorganized politicians and can become a force within the party that endorses candidates. That's a way to be stronger. But if you're the party leader, generally speaking, you do what Ronald Reagan did, which is you say there's an 11th commandment. We don't fight among ourselves. I'm not going to endorse in the primary. And whoever wins the primary is who I'm going to support. That's a way to show strength as a party leader who crosses the boundaries between factions. Trump here has chosen to be a factional leader and to say Trumpism is a part of the Republican Party and it's this guy in Pennsylvania, not that guy in Pennsylvania. And again, in a situation where both of them want to be the Trump person, it's a strange thing to do. It's a way to narrow your reach rather than to broaden your reach. So you think that he is basically committing a major strategic mistake by doing this that will have implications for 2024. What might those be? I do think he's making a mistake. Um, now, I should put my cards on the table. And of course, they've always been on the table mm. about Trump. I hope he's making a mistake. And I'd mm. like to see him dramatically weakened within the party. But I also do think that he's creating a situation that allows for a testing of the boundaries. There's this strange thing in the Republican Party, and there has been for a long time, where a lot of the politicians in the party are never quite sure what their voters will put up with. So that uh, for much of the 21st century, there was a sense that you had to mouth a kind of uh, libertarian economic dogma in order to make it through a Republican primary. Mm -hmm. And... Trump basically ignored that because I think he didn't even know about it. Um, and it turned out you really didn't have to mouth a, a libertarian economic dogma. Those boundaries were imaginary. And a lot of Republican politicians, seeing those boundaries disappear, adopted a new set of boundaries around Trump. And those boundaries say, you can't say anything bad about Donald Trump, because otherwise the voters will throw you out. And so Trump at this point, by endorsing some candidates and not others, is testing those boundaries and creating a test of, of the question, is it possible to run in our party without being in Donald Trump's huh. orbit? And if some of these candidates win, and look, I think some of them are going to win. I hope that happens, very much hope that happens in Georgia. But I think it'll happen in Pennsylvania and in some other places. We've seen already that he's had to withdraw some endorsements from people who certainly weren't going to win. Once it's clear that you can win without being Donald Trump's chosen candidate, some of the people who have ambition to run for president in 2024 might have a different answer to the question, is it possible to run when Donald Trump is running? Whether that means running against him, whether that means just being in the race as another option while he's running, what do these boundaries look like? It's in Trump's interests that there not be an answer to that question, that it remain right. unclear and people are afraid. 
But he himself, by going around endorsing this way, runs the risk of answering that question and in a way that's narrower than people might imagine. Okay, this is very, very interesting. Let me just read you something you wrote, which sort of reiterates what you just said. You wrote, the working assumption in Republican politics right now is that the GOP primary electorate demands absolute groveling fidelity to the guy who lost the party the last election. But what if it turns out this is no more true than the last supposedly binding orthodoxies that you just mentioned? You would think that Trump would want to avoid asking that question and testing the strength of his hold on the party. Yet it is Trump, Trump himself, who has launched this test, pursuing a strategy likely to weaken his position and standing in the GOP almost regardless of how the primaries turn out. But that only actually matters in 2024 if there's someone who can test those limits that you just described. So do you have any sense of who that might be? Well, I'm sure I don't have any novel insight here for you. I mean, I think there are a number of people who are wondering whether it's possible to run if Trump runs. Um, Some of them are planning to do it. I think Chris Christie, for example, is going to run. And uh, don't see that happening, though. Yeah, I don't think he'll win. Um, But I, you know, I think he's one person who is just going to give it a shot. Um, I think there are people like even Ron DeSantis thinking yeah. about, could I run with Trump in the race? And what we're seeing now might give him an answer to that question or Mike Pompeo. The thing to notice about these is these aren't people who are fundamentally anti-Trump. You know, I, I'd like to see some anti-Trump candidates in the race, too, and, I, and I, we'll probably have some, but they will likely be pretty weak. The question is, could there be a non-Trump candidate? And that's what these endorsements are going to answer for us. Can there be a non-Trump candidate who wins elections? And so the primaries that are coming up in just the next six weeks in Nebraska, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Georgia, in Alabama, in Ohio, of course, are going to offer an answer to that question that we have not had. And I have to believe that people with ambition who are thinking about what comes next are going to be paying close attention. Yeah. The reason I asked the question is in politics, you can't beat nobody with nobody. Right. And, you know, going back to uh, what happened in 2016, where everybody's kind of looking at everybody else and going, are you going to do it? Are you going to take, you know, you're going to take him on? I'm going to wait for somebody else. Um, You have to have somebody willing to pull the trigger. I have to say that right now, and I'm certainly not, this is not an endorsement or a positive comment really, but the enthusiasm, the positive vibe for Ron DeSantis in the Republican base is uh, it's pretty interesting that if there is a mood among Republicans that it's time to move on from Donald Trump, give him a gold watch, uh, DeSantis will be able to step in with a lot of juice behind him, mixing my metaphors with, with the wind at his back, because I am noticing this coalescing around him because he's made it by being uh, in many ways Trumpier than Trump. He's made it kind of, um, you know, an, an easy transition for many people in, in MAGA world and that they can convince themselves, well, we get everything we got out of Trump without all the baggage. Do you see it that way? I think that's right. And, and it'll be a real test of whether this is fundamentally a cult of personality and therefore really all about Trump or whether people are ready for someone who says, uh, that was fine, but, you know, the next election can't be about the last election. And so here's what the next phase of this looks like, which I think is something like what DeSantis is trying to do. He certainly has the ambition and it would be a real test. And he's not blinked yet. He has not done anything that would 
undermined his position or his ability to do that. Uh, Yuval Levin, thank you so much for coming uh, back on the podcast. Yuval Levin is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, contributing opinion writer to the New York Times, editor-in-chief of the magazine National Affairs, member of the White House domestic policy staff under George W. Bush, and senior editor of The New Atlantis. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. The Bulwark podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.